All right, topic for tonight in our series on heroes and villains is Vladimir Jabotinsky. And as was the case last week with uh, Rabbi Yol Teitelbaum, where I said that there are people who will regard this person as a villain or as a hero, depending upon who you ask, the same thing will hold true with Jabotinsky. There'll be some vile rhetoric that we will cite in tonight's talk, uh, leveled against him by his Zionist uh, adversaries. And also there'll be a lot of hero worship and uh, the cult of the personality regarding Jabotinsky that to a certain extent still exists today. Okay, so Vladimir Jabotinsky, or Zev Jabotinsky, was born in Odessa in 1880. And Odessa was a different kind of place from the Pale of Settlement. That the Jews of Russia, of Tsarist Russia, lived an isolated uh, parochial existence if you lived in the shtetl, if you lived in the small settlements of the Pale. But Odessa was a new town. It was uh, a 19th century creation, uh, a place of Russian expansion on the southern edges of the empire. And so the people who lived there, of whatever ethnicity they were, and there were a wide range of ethnicities in Odessa, they were not beholden to the old uh, mores of their ethnic group. They could feel free to do whatever they want, which means if you're a Jew, you're not beholden to the old rabbinical dominance of Eastern Europe. And you could be as pious or impious as you would like. It was known in Yiddish as the Geneva Shishtat, the, the city of thieves, because the, the morality of the Odessans were, were, was not uh, held in high regard. And in this city, Jews had greater social interaction with Gentiles than they would anywhere else in the East. Uh, Jabotinsky was raised in a Russian household, not in Yiddish. Now, that's not to say that his mother's maiden tongue was Russian. It wasn't. It was Yiddish. But she made an issue about raising him in the Russian language. His father died when he was six. And so his mother had a hard time raising him. There were a lot of financial difficulties. Uh, Jabotinsky was a very brilliant young man with an aptitude for languages, which would serve him well later in life. But he hated going to school. So he was like a dilettante, except that he was a genius. Um, he had very little Jewish education. He didn't go to shul. He wasn't interested in ritual. And this would hold true for his entire life until the last few years when he had something of, a, of an epiphany, which we'll get to at the end of the lecture. Now, there is a, a commonly held a scholarly notion that Jabotinsky came from an assimilated family and that his Zionism was something that he came to as an adult, a later development in life, but uh, far removed from his essentially un-Jewish childhood. Hillel Halkin, who two years ago wrote a very, an excellent biography of, uh, of Jabotinsky, tries to disabuse the reader of that notion. And he explains that, that in fact, Jabotinsky's mother kept a kosher home, prayed regularly, lit candles, and that this myth that, that Jabotinsky was uh, you know, un-Jewish in his childhood developed because Chaim Weitzman and David Ben-Gurion uh, had a hostile view of Jabotinsky and came from a very different environment. They came from the shtetl. And they considered Jabotinsky a half-breed. Um, so so the, the, the differences between the labor or general Zionism and revisionist Zionism of the right 
has its origins already in the early part of the 20th century, and some of those divisions will continue to this day. It, it, it morphs over time to include other issues and to drop certain issues, but the divisions exist as early as the first decade of the 20th century. Uh, I would agree. I would agree. So, uh, Ben-Gurion once said that of all the leading Zionist figures, only Jabotinsky did not instinctively fear Gentiles. Meaning, if you grew up in the shtetl, the goyim were very powerful and the Jews were very powerless. And the goyim were very uh, dangerous and uh, you could be killed at a moment's notice. A pogrom could, uh, could wipe you all out. There's a fear of what might happen to you as a Jew because you're in a hostile terrain. As opposed to if you grew up in Odessa where everybody's palling around with each other, the Jews and Gentiles alike of various ethnic stripes, so you don't fear anyone. You're just as uh, an equal part of society as anybody else. And Jabotinsky always had that attitude about himself, that he wasn't fearful of the other just because they were a Gentile. Weitzman said that there was something not at all Jewish about him. Another example of a competing political figure making a nasty comment. Now, Odessa was the only place um, in the East where a Jew could function in this way, uh, just like they could in the capital cities of the West, like in Berlin, in Paris, in London. You could be a Jew who hung around socially with a Gentile crowd. Um, and like Moses of the Bible and Theodore Herzl, Jabotinsky had the option of living a totally non-Jewish life. Moshe Rabbeinu could have stayed in the house of Paro and never gone to be with his people. Okay, it says in the Lotam. Okay, that didn't have to happen. He could have stayed in the palace. Herzl as well could have remained either in Budapest or in Vienna as a literary figure or a journalist of some kind and not get involved in Jewish affairs. No, no, no. But but the difference the difference is the difference is that Ben Gurion Weizmann, all the laborites of the East, Levi Eshkol, Yitzchak Ben Svi, their only existence was as a Jew. They never had an option to live uh, comfortably devoid of Jewish content. Jabotinsky had that option, and it seemed early in his life that he would take that route until he was 22 years old. But he eventually moves in a different direction and devotes his time to Jewish causes. Now, in 1898, he travels to Switzerland at the age of 18 to go to law school. Um, he passes through Galicia on his way from Odessa to Central Europe and he is totally turned off by what he sees in Galicia the, the, the shtetl Jews of, uh, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire who had not yet um, acculturated any, in any way and were still old-fashioned Jews he was totally turned off by it he had never seen that before he goes to law school in Bern and doesn't stay very long, so he goes, then he goes to Rome, where he enrolls in the university and stays three years, but hardly ever goes to class. That was his habit. He didn't like to go to class. <laughs> but in, in Italy, he found a spiritual homeland. He always had an affinity for Italy. He would also have a distaste for Germany and a suspicion of the British and a, hate of the, a hatred of the Tsar, but Italy, he loved Italy. While there... He met a Spanish, uh, a Sephardic adventurer named Yosef Marco Baruch, who called for a Zionist army to conquer Palestine from the Ottomans. A, t- a complete absurdity, but the idea 
which he heard at an early age of 18, 19 years old, stayed with him for the rest of his life. And for the next 40 years, until his dying day, one of his great causes would be assembling a Jewish army to fight in the great battles that affected the world, not just the Jews. And he organized in World War One. so we'll get to that soon. Now, he moved back to Odessa to live with his mother in 1901 and work as a journalist, which would basically be how he earned a living for most of his life. And his pen name was the Altalena, which we know is the name of the boat, which uh, was fired upon by uh, the forces of Ben-Gurion and, and Yitzhak Rabin and nearly killed Menachem Begin uh, in the summer of 1948. He was a local celebrity in Odessa. He was a theater critic and um, was very, very well known in Jewish and non-Jewish circles. He met... He was not a political writer. Though. No, he was a cultural writer. Cultural writer. He doesn't really... Uh, get into uh, political writing for another year or two when he devotes his attention to Zionist concerns. He met Anya Gelperin when he was 15 and she was 10. Okay, you say, where is this headed? So 12 years later they were married. He chased her for 12 years. Finally, in 1907, uh, they got married. He was an anti-Marxist, which is very important that even early in life, when there's a tendency for the young people to pursue leftist politics, he did not. He believed that Marxism was, was a moral wrong and an economic disaster. But his writings lent credence to the ch- to charges of anarchism. He, was, he believed in individualism and did not like authority. He was arrested in 1902 and spent two months in jail uh, on, the, on, the, on the theory of the, Tsar, of the Tsarist regime that he favored some kind of a revolution. Uh, in 1902, he was only a sympathizer of Zionism, not yet a full adherent of it, but he never ever doubted, even from the earliest uh, days, the legitimacy, the justification of Jewish nationalism. Um, and he would be a very staunch defender of Jewish rights, Jewish national rights, for his entire life, even as other Zionists took a softer approach towards Jewish national demands. He felt they were entirely justified. Okay. Uh, it, it was very difficult for him intellectually to reconcile his uh, individualism and his belief in the value of individualism with a national struggle, where you throw in your lot with, a, with a, the entire people and subordinate your individual interests to the interests of the people. He would struggle with this for many, many decades. Uh, but he came to an idea that, that was, I serve not because I am required to, but because I will to. And if, you, if you're going to give your, your uh, energies to an idea, give 100% of it. And if you want something, then even though you devote yourself to it and are giving up certain material comforts, that too is considered freedom, because you were free to choose this struggle for yourself. Some scholars, especially those who don't like revisionist and right-wing Zionism, um, consider this to be intellectually unimpressive uh, and was not a good reconciliation of conflicting ideas. They regard it as nonsensical, a nonsensical rationalization. But that was the way he was able to, in his own mind, uh, resolve his inner struggles. So, in 1903, things change for the worse. The Kishinev pogrom is very violent, very bloody, and Jabotinsky believes in organizing self-defense groups in the city. He is, takes pride in being Jewish, but also is ashamed of being Jewish, 
Why was he ashamed? Because the Jews didn't fight back. They went like sheep to the slaughter. So he, he will be critical of his kinsmen and his co-religionist, if you want to call it a religion, although for him it wasn't much of a religion. Um, he was ashamed that they wouldn't stick up for themselves in a time of armed conflict. And he feels there has to be some kind of defense. Well, he went to Kishinev, and he found a Torah scroll that was in tatters. And he picked up a, a, a scrap from the Torah, and he put it in his wallet. And it stayed in his wallet for the rest of his life. And it was a line from the beginning of the book of Exodus, Kiger ha'iti be'eretz nochria. I'm a stranger in a strange land. And that was his attitude. A random piece. If you ever believe there's such a thing as coincidence, he picked up Geraiti Beretz Nachria, and that was his attitude. I am a stranger in a strange land. Okay. He was elected to go to the Sixth Zionist Conference in Basel in 1903, and he was also asked to write for the Zionist newspaper uh, under the editorship of Martin Buber because Jabotinsky was known as being one of the best uh, writers on Jewish causes in the world. But he didn't belong to any political party. Not yet. Not yet. Because he's not a Marxist, he's not a laborite, he is basically a general Zionist in the vein of Herzl at this point. Did he ever interact with Herzl? Okay, okay, so now it's a very interesting question. It's the very next point. He got up to, um, to speak at the, at the conference, and he was, he was spouting b- nonsense, bubble mices. You know, he, it, it wasn't a good speech. And according to the um, one historian, Herzl turned to him and said, because every, every uh, delegate was given 15 minutes to speak, Herzl turned to him and said, your time is up. And that was their only interaction ever. Your time is up. So Herzl uh, would die a year later. His time was up. Jabotinsky was a 23-year-old man, but his 15 minutes were up. Okay? Now, um, there was... There was criticism among certain Russian Jews of the early Zionist conferences that said that Zionism was escapism, that's a solution to our problems, and there were plenty of problems uh, in the Eastern European Jewish world. The problem was to resolve the social ills that plagued the general world, to make Russia uh, an egalitarian society, Marxism, socialism, whatever it might be. And that Zionism, which posited a solution a thousand miles away, was escapism. Jabotinsky's counter-argument is that assimilationism is the real form of escapism, because you're trying to avoid identifying as a Jew, and that's not going to work. Okay. What did Jabotinsky think of Herzl? He regarded Herzl as a genius with no particular talents. Now, what does that mean? It was a, a backhanded compliment of kind. Uh, it was to say that you couldn't pinpoint why Herzl was such a charismatic figure, a magnetic character, where people were drawn to him. They, st- they stared in awe with the jaws open as he would give a speech. The speech wasn't all that good. The manner, the gesticulation, the intonation, it wasn't all that impressive. But somehow, the overall package wowed people. That was Jabotinsky's take uh, on Herzl, and many people would say the same thing about him later on, that as a writer, he was, he was, he was darn good, he was, there was no one better. But as an orator, you couldn't really pinpoint why it was that good, and yet people stood in awe and saluted him and regarded him as, a, as the, the ultimate Zionist personality on the right side of the aisle. Okay. Now, in, in 1904, 
Jabotinsky left Odessa for St. Petersburg to work for the movement, for the Zionist movement. And uh, he did whatever he could as a propagandist. In 1908, he went to cover uh, the Young Turk Revolution in Turkey, but really it was an excuse to go to Palestine for the first time. And he recognized early on that no one was going to give Palestine to the Jews. They would have to take it themselves. They'd have to go there and grab it for themselves. Other Zionist leaders would not realize this for many more decades as we get closer and closer to to 1948. He understood there's going to be an element of coercion here, not sympathy from outside actors. And all would depend upon the fate of the Jews in the diaspora, meaning if life stinks in the diaspora, more and more Jews will be desperate to get to Palestine, and the more that get there, the more likely a successful hostile takeover. He no longer believed in the nationalities of Europe fraternizing with each other, and he gave up on modern uh, uh, liberalism, which for him was a big deal. Because having grown up in Odessa, having spent time in Italy, he liked interacting with other types of people. But he realized it was going to come to an end. This was going to come to an end. Uh, Jabotinsky did not like the people of the Second Aliyah. Now, who was the most important person in the Second Aliyah? David Ben Gurion. What, what did he think of the Second Aliyah, which was 1905, 1906, 1907? He said basically these were people with a chip on their shoulder who were disgruntled that the Russian Revolution of 1905 failed and the Tsar was still in power. And since they couldn't impose socialism in Russia, they went to Palestine and tried to do it there. And he's not wrong. I mean, the first Aliyah were, uh, in 1881-1882 were people who believed in private ownership of property and had uh, for-profit uh, uh, agricultural settlements, whereas the second Aliyah and the third Aliyah um, were people from Eastern Europe who had a, 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 um, an economic political agenda which not everyone agreed with. And it was... It was the kind of economic agenda that could later interfere with this, the economic success of the yeshuv on the argument that it stifles competition when there are unions and, and, and collectives and communes and we need to have a robust economy that is uh, laissez-faire capitalism. So you see how a, a man of the right is, is dissatisfied with the Zionism of the Second Aliyah. In 1909, he moved to Constantinople, now known as Istanbul. And he thought that the Young Turks might come to support Zionism as a bulwark against the Arabs in the southern part of the Ottoman Empire. It was a fleeting thought. It, it, it didn't hold true. The Ottomans had no interest in Zionism whatsoever. Now, the one thing that uh, annoyed Jabotinsky was this obsession by the, by the centrists and leftist Zionists that we're going to... Pr- we're going to build up the yeshuv acre by acre, goat by goat, one little piece at a time. He didn't like that. That was uh, for the Weizmans of the world and for the Ben-Gurians of the world. But he was a Herzlian Zionist, which means how are you going to succeed? With high-level diplomacy, with a big splash, talking to kings and kaisers. That's how you get things done. Was he more of a diplomat or a military? So he was both. He was a rare character who could have a dignified bearing and speak to politicians and diplomats, but also at various junctures of his life, hold a gun. Although he was never personally so comfortable with violence. We'll see he's known as being the the godfather of the Irgun, but he really wasn't. That's, to an extent, a myth. 
Right. He didn't like violence personally. No, it, it existed plenty, but he wasn't there. We'll see he was kicked out of Israel. He died in New York. So, um, Jewish and imperial interests, Jewish and imperial ambitions might coincide, but Jewish and Arab ambitions could never coincide. That was a lesson that he learned very early on in his trip in 1908-1909 to Palestine. He left Istanbul in 1910. His son Eri was born. Eri would later serve in the first Knesset as a member of the Khairut party uh, and go on to have a fairly distinguished career, although he died relatively young. Um, he got his law degree from the University of Yaroslavl in 1912, and he went on a lecture tour in Russia. And he was also put on the planning committee for the future Hebrew University. So he was recognized as an important Zionist figure. He's a young man, he's 32 years old, but he's uh, already achieving prominence as being put in in significant positions in the movement. He, uh, again, had a machlokis with the other Zionist leaders. Whereas they believed in goat by goat, acre by acre, he believed in the big splash. So what did Weizmann want? He wanted Hebrew University to be a little research, research institute right away, and then later it'll expand it to be a full-fledged university with, with undergraduate and graduate degrees and the like. Jabotinsky said, no, right away, let's make it a, a, a big university. It was an absurdity. You couldn't do that. But that was his way. He wanted something big immediately. An impatient character. Okay. His... Um, his attitude towards the culture of uh, the Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael and what made you a good Zionist or a good Jew was that you need only Hebrew language and the physical land of Israel. Other than that, nothing mattered. No Shabbos, no kosher, uh, nothing. Religion, forget religion, forget the, the mores of, uh, uh, of traditional Judaism, Hebrew language, the land of Israel. Otherwise, it could be a European state. Now, Herzl didn't even have that. Herzl just had the land of Israel. He didn't even have Hebrew. He didn't ever spoke Hebrew. He spoke German. Um, so at least Jabotinsky is one step better than Herzl. But still, it's, it's, it's unimpressive Judaically. Achar Ha'am, Asher Hirsch Ginsburg, who was known as the agnostic rabbi, the great le- leader of cultural Zionism, would counter that uh, one need not pursue Zionism if you just want a European liberal society, because a Jew could live humanistically in Europe. So Jabotinsky would counter, yeah, but there's anti-Semitism in Europe, so we can't live there anymore. Um, and... As for the issue of, well, just assimilate and don't identify as a Jew, and then the anti-Semites won't get a hold of you, for that, Jabotinsky countered, no, no, you can't do that because of race. So in the 19-teens, he was playing the race card, that the Jews of Europe are a distinct race, neither superior nor inferior to anyone else. He was not a bigot in the sense of he thought someone was better than anyone else. He simply held, like many people did back then, that races are inherently distinct and it's impossible or nearly impossible to erase the effects of race uh, just by your own fiat. You can't accomplish that on your, on your own. Okay, so, the, so, Jabotinsk, so Jabotinsky will get into trouble and be referred to as Vladimir Hitler because uh, of similarities between revisionism and the Beitar movement 
and the fascism of Italy and Mussolini and the fascism of Germany, Nazi Germany and Hitler. That would be the biggest criticism of him among fellow Jews. Uh, but you see already the, the, the race issue playing a role in the 19-teens. That must have been something in the society in general. This race, that yes. race, and the Jewish race. Yes, it wasn't just him. Most people thought that way. Okay. Now, Jabotinsky predicted the outbreak of World War I, except he was off by a few years. He thought it would happen in 1912. It didn't happen until August of 1914. He was in St. Petersburg when it happened, and he became a war correspondent traveling around the continent because he liked to be where the action was. He didn't like to be away from the action. He had a lust for excitement. All right? Where was his family? His family was in St. Petersburg. But he had a habit of abandoning his wife and child to go on these adventures uh, and on, on, on behalf of Zionism. For the... Uh, how many years was he married? For the 33 years of his married life, he probably was with his wife only half the time. Uh, he, he was accused of having a few girlfriends on the side, and there's some correspondence back and forth. Maybe she tolerated that sort of uh, you know, dalliances. It's unclear. But uh, he wasn't with his wife all that often. Only one child. Okay. Now, uh, at the beginning of the war, although... Jabotinsky had an anti-German bias, and he'd have an anti-German bias his whole life. Secretly, he wanted the Tsar to fall quickly, because like all Jews in Russia, even the ones who had a Russian upbringing with Russian language in Odessa and the like, they didn't like the Tsar. The Romanov dynasty was a, were anti-Semites of the highest order, and he wanted them to go down. Uh, of course, that didn't happen right away. So, Russia's declaration of war against Turkey changed everything for Zionism. Because bear in mind, from 1897 in Herzl's first Congress until 1914, you have 17 years where what is actually accomplished politically? Nothing. The Ottomans are in control. They're not giving it up. Unless someone dislodges them, nothing is going to happen. Yeah, another goat, another, another sheep, uh, another acre for, for, for the socialists in Palestine. But politically, nothing is happening. When Russia goes to war with Turkey, aha! Now this is a tremendous world conflict. There's an opportunity to dislodge the Ottomans. And whoever's going to win, well, if they're favorably disposed towards Jews and Zionism, maybe we'll get something out of it. Okay. So uh, he proposes to his editors that he's going to cover the pan-Islamic revolt in North Africa. But it was a ruse. There actually was no pan-Islamic revolt in North Africa. And he said that the, 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 the peoples of North Africa, the Berbers and the Arabs, are, are fatalistic and very passive. They, they don't do much. Uh, it's true even to this day, really. I mean, if you look at the Arab Spring and the failure of the Arab Spring, they're not so politically effective. Um, so, but it was a ruse. He just wanted to get to Eretz Israel. On his way, he met Max Nordau, who was the old colleague of Herzl, an old man at this point, and asked him, you know, the old man, for some wise advice about how to pursue politics during World War I. And Nordau advocated neutrality. Don't pick sides in World War I because you don't want to pick the loser. And then what happens? Then Zionism is, in a, is dead if you pick the wrong team. Jabotinsky sided with England and France. He was absolutely convinced that they would win. And he wanted a Jewish legion to conquer Palestine for the British. And he became obsessed with this idea. Uh, very obsessed with this idea. Um, he was worried, actually, that the French would take Eretz Israel rather than the British. He, as much as he distrusted the British, he distrusted the French even more. So he, he wanted to make sure that the Jews would fight and win and fight on the same team as the British. In 1915, he went to Egypt under British control. And half of Eretz Israel Jewry was in Egypt at that point. Why? 
Why was half of Israeli Palestinian Jewry in Egypt? Anybody know? Because the Ottomans, at war with Russia, took advantage of the situation and expelled all Jews in Palestine who held a Russian passport. Now, where did Jews come from in the first and second Aliyah? Russia. So half the Jews had a Russian passport. Boom, 40,000 of them. Get out. Very quickly. So what was 80,000 people, a fairly substantial community that had grown over the years, was reduced in half. Where'd they go? They went to Egypt to a refugee camp. And Jabotinsky, as being a leading Zionist figure, was uh, one of the leaders of the, the refugee camp. And there he met Yosef Trimpledor. Yosef Trimpledor was uh, a one-armed hero who fought for the Russians. He was an odd character. His father was a Cantonist. What's a Cantonist? One of these kids who were taken. <laughs> well, right, so one of the kids who was taken at the age of 12 and served 30 years in the Tsarist army, and, and then most of them didn't make it out alive or didn't make it out alive Jewish. He, the, his father made it out Jewish, which was unheard of. And he was raised uh, as a, uh, ethnically and culturally a Jew, but in a pro-Russian environment. And he served loyally in the Tsar's army, lost an arm against fighting against the Japanese, and in 1912 made Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael. He was a good Zionist. He meets Jabotinsky, and while they're, they're collaborating together, the idea is formed for the Jewish Legion. But uh, the British army is not excited about this idea. They're not really interested. Jews fighting. Who ever heard of Jews fighting? So instead they suggested that a mule corps, a transport division, a mule corps, uh, help the British army at Gallipoli, fighting the Ottomans at the Dardanelles. Jabotinsky, uh, Triple Door, ever the fighter, said, all right, uh, fine, okay, let's go, let's roll. Mule corps, Zion Mule Corps, 1915. Jabotinsky was not excited about this because... It didn't serve the interests that he uh, had in mind. Number one, he wanted to have Jews fight heroically, not just schlep mules. He wanted the, the prestige of Jewry to be uh, aggrandized. And furthermore, he wanted there to be several thousand Jewish soldiers recruited from Palestinian Jewry so that when the war was over they would function as a police force in Eretz Yisrael to defend the Yishuv against what would inevitably be Arab rioting and, and Arab hostility. That they would be actual soldiers or policemen in British uniforms but Jews and good Zionists defending their people against the Arabs. It was a brilliant idea if it could be pulled off. The trouble is it had a lot of opposition. So one form of opposition was to say, you're picking the wrong side. You're fighting for the wrong team. Uh, Ben-Gurion and, and uh, Ben-Svi, Yitzhak Ben-Svi, who will be the first uh, prime minister and second president of Israel, respectively, they actually said, no, let's fight for the Ottomans. Fight for the Ottomans? Why? Answer, maybe they'll win. And then if they win and we live there, good. If they win and we fought against them, they'll kill us. So there's a certain sanity to that approach. And uh, it's, it's the safer bet, arguably, but it didn't work out either. In fact, Ben-Gurion was expelled from Palestine and went to America and spent the, year, the, the war years in New York. Um, Ben-Svi. Huh? With, with Ben-Svi, yeah. And Trotsky. And Trotsky, yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of interesting people in the Bronx in 1916. All right. So the Zionist executive in, in Stockholm was opposed to the Legion idea. They were afraid that um, 
Now, either they were rooting for Germany because there was a lot of German Zionists who were patriotic Germans, or they feared picking the wrong team and the fate that would happen to Eretz Israel Jewry. Um, in 1916-1917, ben- uh, Jabotinsky was back in London and actually shared a room with Weizmann. They, they roomed together away, away from their wives for about a year and a half. And so although they would become political rivals at one point, at this, this juncture they're basically friends. Jabotinsky turned to the British Philo-Semites to support the Jewish Legion idea. And there were many reasons why in England there was opposition. Number one, there was the prejudice that Jews don't make good soldiers. Now this goes back to the days of Moses Mendelssohn and the earliest parts of emancipation of Western Jewry. The theory that Jews shouldn't be emancipated because they don't fight, and if they tried to fight they'd be you know, little five-foot-three uh, wimps who don't, don't, can't do anything. Um, so that's one reason. The second reason was that the British army um, was against it. They thought it was irrelevant to the war effort. It would be just siphoning soldiers and, and, and material and money away from the real effort. Thirdly, Anglo-Zionists like Achad Ha'am opposed the militarization of the movement. Now that goes back to the issue of Likud versus labor. You have the Likudniks who are, are accused of militarizing the whole uh, structure of Eretz Yisrael, of Medinat Yisrael, of Zionism, and you have the other side of the aisle that is more culturally inclined and doesn't like weaponry. Okay, the fourth reason is the Anglo-Jewish establishment was against Zionism. Most British Jews in the 19-teens were not yet Zionists. The fifth point was that the newly arrived uh, people from Eastern Europe, the Jews, didn't want to fight in the Middle East. They just left Russia to go to a safe Western country. Who wants to pick up and go fight in the trenches 3,000 miles away? And furthermore, who wants to fight on the, uh, for a country that is aligned with the Tsar? Okay, you, you, you hate the Tsar, you run away to England... Now you want to fight for England on the same side as the Tsar? It doesn't make any sense. And the last reason why, is actually an interesting one, I didn't know this until I was researching the t- topic uh, yesterday, is that there was no draft in England in 1914, 1915, early 1916. Co- uh, a coerced uh, conscription began middle of 1916. And until that happened, Jews in England especially Jews who were not yet British subjects, who were still holding a foreign passport, were not interested in volunteering and didn't want to be coerced into fighting. And the theory was, if there's a Jewish legion, they will be told, you have to fight in this Jewish legion. So the sentiment was against it. You know, Don't do it. I want to stay out of this war. And I think that if you have a legion, I'm going to be forced to, to take up arms. So for all these reasons, you have a lot of, you have a lot of opposition. Eventually, there is approval. In February of 1917, when you have a change of administration, Prime Minister Asquith is replaced by David Lloyd George, uh, who was a a very good Philo-Semite, and he favors Zionism uh, for a variety of reasons, most significantly the desire to have Russian and American Jewry uh, petition their governments to continue siding with the British against the Germans in the war effort, and especially with Russian Jewry, that they not uh, favor a separate peace with Germany um, led by the Kerensky regime, the the, the early non-Marxist revolutionary regime in in 1917 Russia. These, These reasons are used to explain what? 
the Balfour Declaration. How was Chaim Weizmann able to secure the Balfour Declaration? Because the British were interested in maintaining the, the allegiance of or the support of Russian and American Jewry, so throw the Jews a bone, and all of a sudden you have them on your side. Same thing with the Jewish Legion. Throw them a bone, and they'll stay on your team. Okay. Question. Yeah. The religious side of the whole Protestant thing, is that actually in the whole thing, or is that just... For some people, yes. It certainly was true um, for the admitting of Jews into England in the 1650s. Um, but, yeah, it happens to be that there was greater interest in Zionism among Gentiles in England than there was among Jews in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, 1860s even, before, before the pogroms, long before Herzl, there was philo-Semitic millenarianism that believed in the restoration of Jews to Palestine uh, among the, uh, the, 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 the writers, the, the Bell Letters. Yes, yes, yes. So... Um, the struggle was with the Jews, not so much with the Goyim. <laughs> All right. Now, what happens next? So, the, the Jewish Legion comes into existence. Jabotinsky is, is made a second lieutenant. He was the only non-British subject in the history of England uh, to be commissioned as an officer in the army. The only one. And he was in a sort of a funky position because on the one hand he was a relatively low-ranking officer at first and could be yelled at by his drill sergeant for not making his bed properly but also he could excuse himself at any moment and say I have to speak to the Secretary of War so he was a low-level soldier on the one hand but he was a politician on the other shifting seamlessly from one to another back and forth okay the Jewish Legion goes to Alexandria in February of 1918 and they see limited action. There are three, Jew- three Jewish battalions. Uh, they don't really do much. Even though they're around as the, as, as the northern part of Palestine is conquered by the British, uh, their role is insignificant. There's only one lasting memory that Jabotinsky has, and that is there was a, a Turkish soldier who collapsed of exhaustion on the, uh, on the way back to the, uh, the camp. And he, his fellow soldiers wouldn't carry him the rest of the way. And so, what are you going to do with this guy? He's on the floor. Uh, so Jabotinsky consulted with the chaplain, who was a, rabbi, a British rabbi from London, and the options were either to leave him there, but he'll be eaten alive by jackals, or to shoot him. So they shot him. And, and Yesh Omrim, that Jabotinsky pulled the trigger, and that it haunted him for the rest of his life. It was the only time he ever killed a man. So here he's a big military hero, big, uh, big far-rightist, but he pulled the trigger once in his life, and it, it haunted him forever. No, it was a Turkish soldier, a Turkish soldier. Yeah. Okay. They couldn't carry him back. It was, he had no strength. There was no one to hold him. I don't know. It's an odd story. Okay. Now, after the war, the British wanted to remain in Palestine. Um, and they used the Jews and the Arabs against each other as an excuse that we'll stay here to keep the peace. But they really wanted to stay there just to promote imperial interests. Um, When the civilian administration took over for the military, the hope among the Zionists was that whereas the military favored the Arabs because because angry Arabs caused caused more trouble than angry Jews, uh, that's an understatement if there ever was one, uh, the theory was the military might have been hostile to Zionism, but a civilian administration would favor our interests. It didn't work out that way. Jabotinsky understood much earlier than the others that the British were going to be a failure. 
they were not going to su- support uh, or implement the Balfour Declaration, and that the mandate given to them by the League of Nations was going to be a farce. Every every uh, victory would have to be uh, you know scrapped for with with with, uh, with your bare hands. Nothing was going to come easy. Uh, the Jewish Legion was demobilized very quickly, and that was a problem because the whole idea of Jabotinsky was there'd be an army or a police force of Jews to, to protect our interests. Didn't happen. So in 1919, his family moves to Palestine. They live opposite the Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem. Riots break out in April of 1920. Jabotinsky was put in charge of the Haganah. I- irony of ironies, Jabotinsky was the head of the Haganah when it first started. And in, in Jerusalem. There only was in Jer- at the, uh, th- that part. So uh, the Jews were arrested for having uh, illegal weapons. And Jabotinsky, not wanting others to take the fall for him, stepped forward to the British police and said, I was the head of the, this organization, you know, arrest me. So they did. And they sent them to 15 years in jail. Uh, Herbert Samuel, who was the first high commissioner to Palestine and was a Jew, uh, an agnostic Jew, the, one of his first acts was to free Jabotinsky from imprisonment at Acre Prison. So he only served three months. But still, having served three months in prison makes him a heroic figure. You know, he took one for the team. While he was in jail, uh, Trump, jo- Yosef Trumpledor died at Tel Chai. Why did that happen? Because the left refused to call for a withdrawal. Jabotinsky had insisted that if there's a, a, an attack and settlements are about to be overrun, you withdraw, you don't let people die. But he was overruled. The left side of the aisle won the argument, and Triple Door was killed. His memory was, to an extent, hijacked by the right, because Triple Door was really a leftist. Uh, and Beitar, Brit Yosef Triple Door, was named after him. Okay. Um, Jabotinsky was accused of fascism, and uh, well, actually, we'll save it for a, for a little bit. He was unhappy in Palestine. Even though he wanted to live there, like many people who make Aliyah, it just doesn't work out. So he left. In 1921, he goes to work in London for Karen Hayasod. The riots of 1921 are very bloody, and this improves in hindsight that there needed to be Jewish policing. And uh, sadly, the Jewish Legion was no longer. The Churchill White Paper of 1922 leads to a big machlokas. The Churchill White Paper said that Arabs are rioting, we've got to placate them. How do we placate them? The Jews can't have Transjordan. That's cut off. Goodbye. It's not part, of the, not part of the mandate anymore. Only west of the Jordan River is for the Jews. But the other thing is, immigration will be limited to the absorptive capacity of the country, the economic absorptive capacity. So Weizmann and Ben-Gurion readily accepted this because they weren't territorial maximalists. And uh, they wanted the one goat at a time and one acre at a time and didn't want to be inundated with bourgeois, middle-class, urban Jews from, from, from Warsaw. They wanted farmers from the shtetl and to come slowly and surely to trickle over time. Jabotinsky didn't like the white paper, uh, especially not the part about losing Transjordan. He was adamant that there needs to be living space, uh, Lebensraum, like the Nazis. So again, another similarity, Lahavdil. Okay, and he's not happy about this, and he's tempted to, to withdraw membership in the Zionist movement. And in fact, in 1923, he does. He quit the Zionist organization over its soft policies, moves to Berlin, and opens up a for-profit publishing house called Hasefer. In 1923, he also goes to Riga, to Latvia, where he sees Chashmonaim, a group 
that is uh, like the Koach groups of Eastern Europe. They were the uh, athletic societies of young Jews. And he sees how they're very uh, tough and rigid, and they believe in discipline like the Boy Scouts, except even tougher than the Boy Scouts. And he likes this idea, oh, what tough Jews. That leads to the establishment of Beitar, which originally was not a consolidated movement. It was individual groups here and there. But by 1927, it coalesces into one na- uh, international organization, and he becomes the Rosh Beitar, and the cult of personality begins. Everyone is saluting him, he wears his, his uniform, and the like. Now, he didn't want to be a Fuhrer-type figure. It wasn't in him, really. It sort of just worked out that way, if you could say that. Um, he re- it doesn't make sense. You're right. A lot of things don't make sense about him. But he, he was a liberal. He was a political liberal who found himself uh, on Zionist issues being on the right of the spectrum, being adored by young people who were being indoctrinated with paramilitary ideas. Okay. So, in 1925, he establishes the Union of Zionist Revisionists. And they run as a separate political party uh, in the World Zionist Organization um, elections. Some within his party, including himself, Jabotinsky, preferred to not be part of the World Zionist Organization, to just be separate. We have nothing to do with you guys, the Weizmann crowd. But, against his better interest, he stayed in the organization and continued to be the not-so-loyal opposition the, the, the side of the aisle that doesn't win that many seats, like Menachem Begin's Cheirut slash Likud from 1949 through 1977, the loyal opposition that wins not so many seats. That's the revisionists in the 1920s and early 30s. He goes to the United States in 1926 on a trip organized by Saul Hurok, and it was unsuccessful. He wanted to drum up business to support for the revisionists, money, uh, political support, mass support among the Jews. Doesn't happen. In Poland and the the Baltic countries, they love him. Because in Poland and the Baltic countries, we're dealing with vicious anti-Semites. And so Jews are inclined to to the right of the spectrum. In America, what do they want to do? They want to watch Babe Ruth and win the World Series at Yankee Stadium. The the, the interest in in extreme Zionism is just not there. He visits Palestine in 1926 and is very disappointed in the economy. There had been a recession at that point. He blamed the, 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 um, the, the unions, the Histadrut and the socialists, uh, for basically stifling competition and, and ruining what could have been a good bourgeois middle-class society. He had bad electoral results in 1927 at the Congress and is not really able to influence policy. What is the major controversy? So the major controversy over the next two years, 27 and 29, is the expansion of the Jewish agency. The Jewish agency was established by the British Mandate to be the liaison between the Jewish community and the government of the Mandate. And it was a de facto government for the Yishuv until the establishment of the State of Israel. So who's part of that Jewish agency? You would assume only Zionists, but no. There was a goal, there was a desire on the part of Weizmann to expand the Jewish agency to include non-Zionists in the diaspora, like rich American Jews, like uh, uh, Louis, uh, Louis Marshall and uh, Felix Warburg, uh, all the, heavy, the heavyweights of American Jewish life the good reformed non-Zionists. Why? Because they got the money and the political power. And if you throw them a little, a little uh, bone of you're on the Jewish agency and you can dictate a few couple of policies, maybe we'll get a lot of support from them. Jabotinsky said, no go. If this is a Zionist organization, it's going to be run by Zionists, not some rich Jew who's a, who's a, re- a reformed Jew from Temple Emanuel who doesn't really believe in Zionism. Okay. 
1928, he moves back to Israel to work for the Judea Insurance Company. So again, it's a quirky thing. Here he's this big Zionist figure, but how does he earn a living? He sells insurance. I mean, he was the head of the opposition. He's got to earn Parnassa. So $500 a month, he worked for an insurance company. And he worked for the right-wing newspaper, Dor Hayom. And then we get to the, the most unsettling part of his career. In 1929, there were problems at the Kotel. Uh, the Arabs didn't like that there was a machitza, that there were chairs, that there was you know, a minion, a, a full-fledged synagogue was developing at the Kotel. And so they complained to the British, and the British cave into to Arab demands. And on Tisha B'Av, there was a big chauffeur-blowing ceremony, and they sang Hatikva, and, and they flew the flag, all egged on by the Doha Hayom newspaper, which led to riots immediately thereafter, including the Chevron riot and the killing of 67 people. So some Jews blamed Jabotinsky and the Doha Hayom newspaper for instigating the, 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 the riots and the massacre. And so his reputation takes a little bit of a hit for that. He wasn't even in town as that was going on, because he had been in Europe, uh, for the Zionist Congress of 1929. His family, seeing what happens in Eretz Israel, doesn't want to go back. Just forget about it, we'll live in Europe. So for the second time in a decade, his attempt at Aliyah for him and his family fails. No more Eretz Israel, uh, going back to Europe. Um, he takes one last trip to Eretz Israel in, in December of 1929, not realizing it would be his last. And on the day before he leaves, he gives an impassioned speech on the beach of Tel Aviv in which he supposedly said that there will never be peace between Jews and Arabs. And it was seen as an incendiary speech, although the, the actual content that's preserved is not so incendiary. And High Commissioner John Chancellor issued an order after the, as, he's, as Jabotinsky was leaving that you can't come back, you're banned. Banned from Eretz Yisrael. So, what does he do about it? Does he fight it? He doesn't. You might have thought that he'd you know, request permission to come back, he'd put, put a political campaign. And the truth of the matter is, even from a left-wing Zionist perspective, from the adversaries of Jabotinsky, it's not right that a Jew should be barred from Eretz Yisrael. You know, a Jew who has ties to the Holy Land, who is able to go back and forth, is not stuck in a, in a, in a country uh, uh, um, and can't emigrate, but rather he's free to go back and forth. Why can't you let him in Eretz Yisrael? It's wrong. It's, it's, it's un-Jewish. There should have been a mass protest on his behalf. But he didn't mount one. So, Yesh Omrim, that he took it with stoic fortitude. That's the revisionist official policy. Uh, he, he, he just decided that he wasn't going to fight it. He was a stoic. But Halkin argues in the biography, and I think he's right, that Jabotinsky didn't want to go back. He never really liked Eretz Israel. It's hard to say, he's a big right-wing Zionist, but he was never comfortable there. He moved twice and left both times. Family wasn't happy there, the wife wasn't happy there. Uh, he just, it, it, didn't, it wasn't a fit. He was a cosmopolitan man of Europe. As much as he was a paramilitary leader of the, of the Beitar, he was also a man of letters and a man of, of Rome and Paris and London. And that's where he hung out, where he enjoyed life. Okay, so he didn't really make a serious effort to get back. Um, in 1931, the Zionist Congress meets again, and they discuss the Passfield White Paper, which again, not Nacha White Paper, where Jewish rights and property rights are, are curtailed. He doesn't like the fact that Weitzman is very soft on all these issues and is, is always get, uh, the yes man for the British. So he takes his membership card in the WZO and tears it in half from the podium, all right, and says, I'm out of here. Weitzman overplayed his hand. 
um, it, when he said that I don't. Uh, Weitzman said we're not even looking for a Jewish majority demographically in Eretz Yisrael. Now, for a, for a Zionist leader to say that is idiocy. So they ousted him from power, and uh, in, in his place, Nachum Sakala was elected the, 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 the world chairman of the WZO, and Weitzman would not come back for four more years. Um, so you see, the left-right divide was very stark. The left and even the center is reluctant to say we're pushing for Jewish statehood. They're not even saying we're pushing for a Jewish majority. They're just pushing for Jewish immigration rights, Jewish property rights, the building of the Yishuv. Whereas the right says, no, today I want a Jewish state. I want a massive immigration of a million Jews to come tomorrow. That's the stark difference between the left and right. Now, Okay, so before 1933, the interest in moving was not that great so as to uh, have such numbers. After 1933, there was a tremendous interest in leaving, not just Germany, but also Austria, even Poland and Romania. Um, and even the Soviet Union, if you could get out. But um, there, there were plenty of Jews to be had if the British would let them in. Certainly, as you progress into the decade of the 30s. Now, the 1933 election was the most hotly contested election of them all. It was basically Jabotinsky versus Ben-Gurion. And both wanted a Jewish state, whereas one is campaigning openly for Medina, Malucha, the other is camouflaging it uh, in softer terms. So, it was the lackey of Moscow versus Vladimir Hitler. Those are the two candidates. The lackey of Moscow versus Vladimir Hitler. And things get very dicey, because on June 16th... The, the right in the pol- in political campaigns so he was not a lackey of Moscow he never was the Mapam were lackeys of Moscow but that, not the Mapai but if you were a rightist and you wanted to besmirch his, his uh, reputation you could, you could say he was a lackey of Moscow so on June 16th things get very complicated because Chaim Orlosov is assassinated on the beaches of Tel Aviv and very quickly, three members of the revisionist movement are arrested and accused of murder. They are uh, tried for murder, and during the trial, an Arab uh, is arrested and confesses for shooting Orlosarov in an attempt to rape Orlosarov's wife, except that he ran off and didn't touch the wife because he got scared. So, despite that confession by the Arab uh, perpetrator, Stavsky, one of the three revisionists who was, who was, who was arrested, was convicted. The other two, the charges were dismissed, but he was convicted and sentenced to death. But on appeal, it was reversed and he was let go. But the damage was done because during the election campaign, you could now accuse the right side of the aisle of being murderers. Uh, Just like in the 1996 election, it was very tempting for people on the left side of the aisle to accuse Netanyahu of fomenting the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. Whether true or false, the point is, as a political matter, as an electioneering matter, you can get away with it, and it works. Okay. So, having lost the election, Jabotinsky finally leaves the, the World Zionist Organization for good. And for the first time, the labor movement is in control. Because until that point, from Herzl's day through Weizmann, from 1897 to 1933, who ran the movement? The centrists, the general Zionists. Those who, who did not have an, an additional agenda of socialism. Um, and going forward, from 1933 to 1977, the Yishuv and the state is run by, by socialists. Jabotinsky was a, a, a believed in Zionist monism. Monism. One idea. 
One idea and one idea only. Jewish statehood. Jewish statehood. And not to be, not to be adulterated with other ideas, like an economic idea of Marxism, socialism, whatever it might be, just focus on the politics of Jewish statehood. Don't mix around other, other elements that are peripheral. Now, in some ways, Jabotinsky was his worst enemy politically because he declared that if he lost the election, he would withdraw from the movement. And many of his supporters wanted him to withdraw from the movement. So what did they do? They just didn't vote. In other words, they were, they were secessionists by, by nature. So you want, you want to leave? Good, let's just not vote. We'll lose. We'll get out. Um, sounds like a lot of Republicans today. But... Uh, <laughs> That, w- that was their attitude. If he was such a flawed character, uh-huh. what was Begin's infatuation? Begin uh, w- was infatuated with him because he could command respect. But, as we'll see, in 1938 they had a falling out. They, they, have, they had a big falling out just before Jabotinsky died. Now, I want to read to you a quote uh, from the biography, from a letter that Jabotinsky wrote to Herzl. To, not to Herzl, to Ben-Gurion. That after 1935, when the new Zionist organization was founded by the revisionists, and as a breakaway from the old Zionist organization, um, there was a real machloket, a real division in the yeshuv between the right and the left. They were fighting. Violence was breaking out. The Histadrut Union and the revisionist union of laborers would pick at each other and, and try to bust up uh, strikes and there was, there was a d- disagreement over aliyah certificates because the way it worked was your political party got a percentage of the aliyah certificates based upon your representative in the Zionist Congress. So if you were the big faction, you got most of the certificates. If you were a minor faction, you got less certificates. But if you, if you withdraw, where are, you gonna, where are your certificates going to come from? They're not. So all the revisionists stuck in Poland, how are they going to get to Eretz Israel? Not going to be easy. So there were shenanigans being played with who gets the certificates. All the, for all these reasons, uh, Jabotinsky requested a, a, a sit-down with, with Ben-Gurion to hash out their differences. And they, they worked it out, but whereas the revisionists approved the deal, the Mapai rejected it. The Mapai were the irredentists in this case, and no, no modus vivendi could be agreed upon. The, the arguments continued. But I want to read to you a little paragraph. One short philosophical note. I can vouch for there being a type of Zionist who doesn't care what kind of society our state will have. I'm that person. If I were to know that the only way a state was, uh, uh, could be formed was via socialism, or even more that this would hasten it by a generation, I would welcome it. More than that, give me a religiously orthodox state in which I will be forced to eat gefilte fish all day long, and I'll take it. More, even more than that, make it a Yiddish-speaking state, which for me would mean the loss of the, the magic of Hebrew. If there's no other way, I'll take that too. So, basically, that's the monism. Give me a state. The details, I really don't care. I mean, I care, but it's not as important as getting that state. That was the Jabotinsky approach. Okay. The riots break out in 1936. The, the left side of the aisle believes in Havlaga restraint. Jabotinsky theoretically believes in Havlaga, but as things get worse and worse, he moves away from a passive policy, and he notices that the Irgun is leading to is, is engaging in, in acts of offensive violence. And he's not in Israel. He's not in Israel. He's not allowed to be in Israel. He's living in uh, in, in Paris until 1937, and then he goes to London, then he goes to New York. So, as things get worse and worse, Jabotinsky begins to justify Jewish terrorism. And if not justified, at least question the illegitimacy of it. 
Now, there's a difference between justifying something and questioning its illegitimacy, the latter being a little bit more benign. But you see the direction he's headed. He's a European liberal with a strong Jewish fervor, and he doesn't want you know, innocent Arab farmers to be shot in the back as they bring vegetables to Tel Aviv to market. But when it's happening, he's hesitant to, to criticize the Irgun for what they're doing. He sends his son, Eri, to go to Eretz Yisrael and try to make an, a, a relationship between the Irgun and the revisionists. The Irgun started as its own organization. It was not under his control. But he later becomes the, the titular head of the Irgun by 1938. Uh, things are getting worse and worse. And he has fleeting thoughts of a Zionist insurrection against the British, like an invasion, a coastal invasion of, of, of Palestine, uh, of fighters aboard ships, and taking over the country. But he realizes this is absurd. Menachem Begin favored it. And he had a falling out with Jabotinsky over this issue. Begin said, let's go ahead and do it. And Jabotinsky said, my son, you're ridiculous. It, it, it can't work. It, it's just not going to work. In 1939, in August, as the, the, the drum roll, roll to war is uh, heating up, and after the, 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 the pact between the, the Nazis and the Soviets, it was very obvious there was going to be war the last week of 1939. Even Jabotinsky himself said, uh, maybe we have no hope, let's try for an insurrection in Palestine. But a week later, the war started, can't do it. Once the war begins, he realizes he can't fight the British now. We've got to defeat the Nazis, and the British are fighting the Nazis, so we cannot engage them in hostilities. But what do you need? You need a Jewish army. A Jewish army to fight soldiers from Eretz Yisrael and from the stateless refugees of Europe will fight with the Allies. Does he have anyone supporting this? Not really. Just like he had opposition to the Jewish uh, Legion in World War I, he has opposition to a Jewish army in World War II. Now, he dies in August of 1940, and next week we'll discuss Peter Bergson, or Hillel Cook, who takes up the cudgels of the Jewish army fight uh, and issues of rescue and re- uh, uh, Jews of Europe. But just the last point about Jabotinsky's life, he, he was traveling on a Nansen passport. What's a Nansen passport? It's for a, a stateless person. He refused to take citizenship, even as a resettled refugee, in any country. He insisted that the next time he'll be a citizen of a country, it will be in a Jewish state. So he traveled as a stateless refugee on a passport issued by the, by the League of Nations. And in 1940, he went to America. He forgot to update his passport. So he couldn't travel. He couldn't get out of America. His wife was stuck in London during the Blitz, the bombing of London. His son was in jail in Acre, uh, prison in Israel because the, 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 the British had arrested him on trumped-up charges because he was the son of Jabotinsky. So now the son is in jail, the wife is in the London bombings, he's stuck in New York, he's miserable, his health is failing, he's got diabetes and a heart condition, and he's making no progress politically, diplomatically in America. The, the American administration doesn't really care about him, and even the Jews are not so excited about him because the, the, the Jew, in America, revisionism never took hold like other forms of Zionism did. So he's a defeated man. He's nowhere. He's nothing. But Beitar still loves him. So he goes upstate on August 2nd to a camp in the Catskills and he, he takes an honor guard. They salute him. He salutes back and he collapses. He dies two days later on August 4th, 1940. The same day, August 4th, that Herzl died 36 years earlier. So Jabotinsky, in many ways, is the, success, the true successor to Herzl. Zionist monism. You believe in the Jewish state without adulterating it with other ideas, and you pursue it at the high, level of high diplomacy, and not with an emphasis on the small progress of the Yishuv. 
We'll stop here. Next week, Peter Bergson. Yeah.